That one's a beauty, right? Uh, 500 years ago, October of the year 1517, was a crucial time in world history. Looking back, it marks a line in the sand for massive changes within the church and within the wider Western world, laying the foundation of the religious freedoms, the political freedoms, and leading to the personal freedoms that we now enjoy and take for granted. At the heart of this great reformation of 500 years ago are five pillars, which we are visiting in the five worship services here at Elmhurst CRC in the month of October. We're revisiting these not just as relics of a past, but as an essential part of our present reality and for our future world. These are the five in short. Last week was sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. This week is sola fide, that we experience God's gift of grace through faith alone. Next week will be solus. We have a young man approaching. Pastor Greg, Pastor Greg. What, Levi? All right, I have a present. It is Pastor Appreciation Month, I just found out. I'm, I'm just... Is it okay if I leave this here for now? All right, okay, maybe get to this later on. Awesome. Next week will be Solus Christus, that it is the work of Christ alone that makes all the difference in the world, and then Sola Scriptura, that our primary rule for faith and life is the Bible, the way God chooses to reveal himself. And then finally, uh, week five will be Solo Deo Gloria, or that glory and praise and honor and thanks goes to God and God alone. So this week is faith alone. I'm going to focus quite a bit on the biography of one Martin Luther. Okay? There's a particular verse from Romans chapter 1 that reads like this. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. How are the righteous going to live? By faith. If you're righteous, how are you going to live? By faith. 500 years ago, that phrase, by faith, righteous will live by faith, made a world of difference. So much of the sermon today will be reliving the gospel light as it was turned on for this man, Martin Luther. Now, only the power of God can explain how the world was changed by a man who was habitually depressed, intestinally complicated. He wrote a lot about that. Emotionally distressed, spiritually dilapidated. He was energetically aggressive. He was obsessive, progressive. He was a mess of a man. He was a beer-loving, truth-loving, God-loving, Jesus-loving, teacher, priester, priester, he was a priest, preacher, pastor, songwriter, saint, sinner, loser, winner, man of faith. 
Martin Luther was born in the year 1483, a little village called Eisleben. His father had kind of broken out of the economic world of his time. I mean, in 1483, the world was not like it is now. 90% of Europeans were serfs. Do you remember this from economic system from history? I mean, only 10% of society was either clergy or nobility. Almost everybody was a serf, but Martin Luther's father rose up high enough to actually own and run a copper mine. And he had more mm, petty cash than 90% of people around him. With his cash, Martin's father decided that he would pay for the best education that money could buy for his son. This was a rare gift 500 years ago. Martin was clever. And by the time he made it to college uh, as a mid to late teenager, he was sent to a nearby town. He trained in undergraduate school and then as a lawyer. School then was a much harsher reality than what it is here. He was up at 4 a.m. every day. How about that? They only ate two times a day. The food was not great, but he was offered, along with every other student, because the water supply was so tainted, a full liter of beer with every meal. This is not going to happen for you, teenagers. The fact that Martin was smart... You can hear echoes of it in that his uh, classmates called him the philosopher. His good, curious nature evident even when he was a mid-teenager. His other nickname was, if you'll sense a theme going on here, the king of hops, is how he was known to his friends. After he graduated from college, he entered law school. He was getting close to graduation. He is now in his 20s. And he is riding from his hometown back to school, and he finds himself in an immense and frightening thunderstorm. And he's worried for his life. 500 years ago, life was enormously more fragile than it is today. The percentage of children that died in childbirth. Martin Luther lived in a time where the plague routinely swept through towns and villages. Some estimates are that uh, as much as 50% of Europe's population died over a 50-year period. Martin Luther lost his three closest friends while he was in college to the plague. Living to old age was no guarantee. He found himself in the storm and was frightened for his own life, and he shouted out a prayer, which I will quote you directly in his language, Hilf du heilige Anna. Ich will ein Monk werden. He says a prayer to St. Anne. Oh, St. Anne, help me! If I make it, I'll become a monk. This is ironic because Martin Luther's later theology would refute praying to saints. But he shouts out a prayer to a saint, and his life is spared. He is almost a lawyer. He is almost ready to make it big. He is almost ready to fulfill his father's dreams economically, socially for him. But because he lives, he checks into a monastery two weeks later. Wouldn't you love to see his father's face 
when he got, this is what Martin Luther looked like, his monkish haircut. Wouldn't you love to see his father's face when he got that letter? Dear Dad, you know how close I was to graduation and all that money you spent on my education for the last 20 years? Actually, I'm going to become a monk and dedicate my life to the church. It did not go happily or well. The thing about Martin Luther is that whatever he put his mind and energy to, he did it to the brim. He was the kind of personality who would not be kept down. So as a monk, he checked into the most austere, aesthetic, difficult-to-live day-to-day monastery that he could find. He stretched his brain. He stretched his discipline. He learned Greek and Hebrew. He was obsessive about confessing his sins four times every day. There are stories of him lying on a particular slab on the floor, which was a tomb, and he would lay there during the hours of the night, convicted of the things that he left unconfessed and therefore were unforgiven. This was a man with a strong mind and a strong conscience. His other monks got so sick of him that they sponsored a trip, a pilgrimage, to Rome, the holy city. Get out of here for like six months, Martin. Walk to Rome, have a good time in Rome, walk back, and hopefully you come back as a better person. So as a 25-year-old, Martin Luther walks to Rome. He is excited. He is going to see the Pope. He is going to hear masses spoken in the church's epicenter. Holy Rome! If you've ever been to Rome or seen pictures, I mean, it was as amazing 500 years ago as it is now. I mean, the Colosseum was there, all the ancient Roman ruins. I mean, the church around the year 1500 was building St. Peter's Basilica. I mean, the class of 1500 in terms of artists is incredible. I mean, Michelangelo was painting. Raphael was painting. Leonardo da Vinci was running around. This is the world that Martin Luther steps into, and initially he is overwhelmed with amazement. But after a few weeks, his eyes and ears start picking up on things that make him profoundly upset. Most of the church services that he goes to are just spoken quickly and done. He detects in the church's massive building projects, in the lives of the cardinals and the pope himself, a a wealth a luxury, an extravagance. I mean, this is a guy who came from the north. I mean, two meals a day and the water isn't clean. And suddenly, opulence and money and being pampered. And what? How can this be the church of Jesus Christ? So by the time Martin walks back to Germany, he is profoundly upset by the church that he has witnessed. He continues to drive his fellow monks nuts when he gets back. His conscience is even more active, if that were possible. So they sent him away again. (laughs) This time to the nearby town of Wittenberg, where Martin falls under the spiritual direction of a fellow monk, a father, named Staupitz. Of all the people in his life, Staupitz understands Martin. 
And rather than trying to overwhelm him with just the truth that he is forgiven, according to the scriptures, Straupitz understands that what Martin really needs is some ways to just take himself less seriously. So Straupitz makes fun of Martin routinely, just mocks him, tries to get him to laugh. And his other strategy is to turn Martin's profound introversion and his good mind just introspecting his own sin problems to point him outwards to the world instead. So Staupitz appoints Martin to be a Bible teacher so that he will have to think about others and teach students and have to give himself away rather than beating himself up day after day after day. It is in this role as a professor of theology and a Bible teacher for students that Martin Luther comes face to face with the gospel. I mean, he's sorting through the scriptures in a way that he hadn't before in order to pass them on to the young. In particular, the book of Romans, what St. Paul, the way St. Paul preaches the gospel to the ancient Roman church, grabs a hold of Martin. I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 3. This is what made all the difference to this man 500 years ago. Righteousness is given through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile or rich or poor or men or women or whatever two classes of people you want to talk about. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Righteousness is given, how? Through faith. Now there are lots of big, loaded, deep words just in these short verses uh, that are resonant with meaning. I'm going to tackle just one of them for a moment. What is righteousness? What is the righteousness that comes by faith? When the Bible speaks of righteousness, it is almost always doing so on two levels. Level number one is big and cosmic. Righteousness is truth. It is final and ultimate reality. It is what is right. It is God's reality. It is God himself. Righteousness. Big. And secondly, righteousness is that divine energy that seeks to make everything wrong into right. And in particular, in the New Testament, that energy, that righteousness, is a person. It is Jesus and the spirit of Jesus who seeks to work that healing rightness or righteousness deep into the broken lives, the sinful lives of everybody through faith. If you only take meaning number one of righteousness, the big cosmic one, it leaves us kind of cold and distant. Righteousness, truth. If you only take meaning number two, hey, there's a power working within me, it can leave you sentimental and shallow. But if you take both of those meanings as the scripture intends, hmm, that is when the good news starts making a difference. Romans 3 continues this way. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement 
through the shedding of his blood. And the sacrifice is meant to be received, how? By faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand by everybody who lived before, left those unpunished. God did it to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time. So as to be just, big cosmic truth, and the one who justifies the internal difference in all of us, those who have faith in Jesus. In contrast to Martin Luther's earlier life experience, and in contrast to the way that the gospel had gotten sullied and polluted in his era of life, salvation comes. Salvation is received, obtained, through faith alone. See, Martin Luther thought, I need to pray harder and I will be saved. I need to fast more and I will be saved. I need to do more all-night vigils and maybe I will make some progress to being saved. I need to beat myself up. I need to make long pilgrimages. I need to become a priest. I need to be benefited by the priesthood of others. I need the authority of the Pope. I need the authoritative tradition of the church. I need to give more to the poor. I need more frequent celebration of the sacraments, and maybe, maybe, maybe I will make some progress toward being saved. And through reading and teaching and believing the gospel as it comes through the book of Romans, the light finally went on for Martin Luther. No, I can't do anything to merit my own salvation. All I can do is receive the gift of God's grace and open myself through faith to receive this gift. This is what sola fide means. Faith alone can receive the gift of God in Jesus Christ. When Martin Luther realized this, he said, and I quote, all at once, I felt as though I had been born again. The system Martin Luther had grown up with is a system of spiritual achievement that I liken to the mile markers on a highway. I mean, in my life, I have driven between Chicago and Grand Rapids, Michigan, like roughly 40,000 times. Okay, maybe like 400 times, but it's a lot of times. I mean, I know like every mile marker on the highway. And the way the spiritual system worked, it was like, you know, if you, if you go to several church services, maybe you make it a tenth of the mile on that 200-mile trip, you know, towards salvation or Grand Rapids. They're not the same thing. We celebrate the sacrament every day for a month. I mean, maybe that's half a mile. To become a priest, I mean, that might be five miles. But then you sin, you swear, you like pass out in a gutter, and then you have to go back a mile. Like this was how his spiritual system worked. You understand? And there's part of us, even though we're a long ways past it, there's a part of our sinful nature that still kind of believes stuff like that. If I'm just a good Christian boy day after day, like... That's how it's going to work out for me. 
and the revolutionary idea <laughs> was that our works are not what counts in bridging the distance between sin and salvation. What bridges the distance is not a slow incremental trip of human works, but the transporting power of Jesus Christ, which takes you from sin to salvation. One doesn't achieve one's own salvation. One receives by faith the gift of salvation. So the scripture says this, if it's a gift to receive, where then is your boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? That's the old law. Just be a good person, do everything right. No, it's because of the law that requires faith. This is the law of Jesus Christ. For we maintain that a person is justified, how? By faith, apart from the works of the law. Martin Luther's obsessive question was, why is there sin? How can I be saved from my sin? And the answer he discovered in the gospel was faith alone. Open the window of faith and let the salvation of Jesus Christ come in. 500 years later, there are not many people in our midst who have the personal crisis of conscience that Martin Luther had. Right? I mean, how many people can't get out of bed in the morning because they're just like, oh, I'm so sinful? We're, like, proud of the crazy stuff we do. I mean, it gets us attention, right? This is why we put pictures of our, some of our worst sins on Facebook. Like, we crave attention more than righteousness. Well, that's humbling. The question we run around with more than why is there sin and how can I be rescued from my sin, we modern people <laughs> have personalized it in this way. Why is there pain? And why do I have to suffer as much pain as I do? It's not as good of a question. It's not as biblical a question. But that is our question. And I would humbly suggest to modern people like us that still the answer to that inferior question, why do I hurt? Why is there pain? How can we resolve this pain and anxiety and darkness that I experience, where's the resolution for that? The answer is the same. Through faith alone, which opens up the gospel to us. Martin Luther obsessed with now this gospel. And he was very adamant that when it came to salvation, no good works were necessary. In fact, he hated the book, hated. He really didn't like the book of James, which goes out of its way to point out that faith and works go together. Martin Luther referred to the book of James as an epistle of straw, as opposed to something sturdy like bricks and mortar. It was an epistle of straw, and he wanted to get rid of that book from the New Testament, actually. Martin Luther was not a perfect person. <laughs> it took... Uh, some more fully-orbed theological understanding, to put it this way. We are justified, we are made righteous by faith alone. But faith is never alone. 
Can you wrap your heart around that? We are justified, we are made right, we are forgiven through faith alone. But that faith is never alone. Martin Luther was far from perfect in working out his own faith. He did scores of boneheaded and brutal things, some of which you'll hear about in the coming weeks. His works were far from perfect. But one of the lasting gifts, not just for our present age, but for the future, was to give power to the core of these two words that make up Protestant Reformation. Those words are made up of protest and reform. As 21st century Americans in our political lives, more importantly, as Christians in our spiritual lives, we treasure these words, protest and reform. We are called to protest the wrongs we see in ourselves and the wrongs we see in the world around us. And we are called to be open to the power of reformation, of transformation, to change ourselves and the world around us. So the million-dollar question is this. How do we access this power of reformation, of transformation, whether it's combating sin or pain or the trouble of the world? The answer today is we unwrap the gift of God's grace. That's why this is here. A a gift comes out of the blue. It's a grace. Didn't ask for it. It just showed up. When we open the gift that God has given to us in Jesus Christ, (laughs) there's some amazing things in here. Some simple things, some things that are signs of larger reality. Like, God gives us the word. I mean, he gives us the story, our story, and he gives us the living word who is Jesus Christ. And God gives us the cross, if you can see this. A man from our church did surprise me with this and make this for me at one, at one time. God gives us these gifts. They are signs. They are seals of his love for us. And as far as I can tell, what I'm supposed to do with my life is to receive this gift from God and then open this gift from God and then possess, obtain, wear this gift from God. And then I'm supposed to not just possess it, but cherish it, love this gift, spend time with this gift, turn this gift over, cherish this gift, and then finally, to fulfill, to consummate this gift, I'm supposed to share it. Like, that is, that closes the loop in the gospel. It makes it come full circle. Receive a gift, open the gift, possess the gift, Cherish the gift. Share the gift. So I'd humbly ask and challenge, in your life of faith with God, how are you doing with that? There's times, there's been times for me 
where I'm living my life and I'm aware the gift is right there, but I'm just letting it sit there. Right? It's not enough that the gift is sitting here, especially if it's unopened. So if we're okay with, yeah, God sent Jesus, I mean, the gift of his grace, it's right there. I'm living my life. If we never bother to open it, we're not living fully by faith. And if we open it, and if we just act surprised, like, oh my goodness, it's incredible what's in there. Then put the box back on and live our life. We are not living fully by faith. If we take out the gifts, if we receive the gospel, we're not quite yet living fully by faith. Even if we are cherishing the gift, loving the gift, growing from the gift, we have still not yet fully clothed the close the circuit and let the gospel light shine is when we share the gift. That the gospel truly comes alive. Martin Luther is not a model citizen. He would survive like eight months as the pastor of a Christian Reformed church. Just, (laughs) he would make us so uncomfortable. Mm. But 500 years later, because he received and opened and cherished and shared the gift of the gospel, I mean, we are still benefiting. What might happen, friends and neighbors? What might happen if we walked in those footsteps? God has done everything for us in giving us this gift. And he is empowering us even as I speak to open the window of faith and let this gift do what only Jesus Christ can do. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we are tempted all the time to think that it's about us, that it depends on us, that the progress we make is what really matters when sitting right in front of us is your gospel, where inside of us is the gift of your spirit. Oh God, you ask so little of us just to open the window in our lives, in our souls, the window of faith so that the gift of your gospel can be received and that the wind of your spirit might blow through. God, help us not to get in our own way but to desire openness to you above all things. And Lord, we would humbly ask that uh, when it comes to talking to our neighbors, being around our coworkers, that that openness of spirit might be evident to them and that they might see that working of the gospel within us and wonder, what is going on there? God, this morning, we do open ourselves to you We open ourselves to the gospel. In good faith we pray. Amen.
Friends, I'm going to invite our deacons forward in just a minute uh, to receive the offering. A couple announcements. Um, we're having a great event at 4 o'clock over at Timothy Christian's Middle School, a uh, brand new facility to kind of celebrate the value of Christian education. Uh, Reverend Dr. Tim Blackman, the chaplain at Wheaton College, is going to speak and has prepared uh, a very wise and instructive lecture about uh, how discipleship and education go together. So invite you to that. Um, if you are new to our community, the next three Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m., we're going to be offering new members classes called Journey to the Center of the Church. Um, kind of share about how our church, we share the gospel. If you're wondering, what is going on with these people? Or, how might I join them? That is the step to take. Um, if you'd let us know that you're coming, that would be best of all. God has been so kind to us, so we generously give the best of what we have in return. I invite the deacons forward and invite you all to be generous.